Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. It's a wonderful privilege and a fearful responsibility to be a teacher of the only perfect book. I spent my time through the middle of my MBA listening to teachers whose books had been written by God-haters, and then the teacher would put their own slant on what the God-haters had written. So by the time it got to my ears, it was really messed up and twisted. And there's so much of that going down in our universities today. But we have a book that is a library sent to us from heaven that has 66 books in it of every literary genre that you would want to read. There's poetry and there's systematic theology. There is history and there are songs. There are biographies and there is tight logical reasoning. We have a wonderful library. And I hope that we are Bible Christians this day. The Bible has this to say about itself. To the law and to the prophets. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The Bible's the measure of all truth. It contains absolute truth, and anything that differs with it is a lie. The Bible says, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate Every false way. They can call it a hate crime or not, but we hate anything that differs from the Bible. That was the sweet psalmist of Israel while he plucked his harp and tore a lion's face off. He said, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. The Bible says every word of God is pure. The Bible says about itself, there is nothing fraud or perverse in God's words. That's Proverbs chapter 30 on the first reference and Proverbs chapter 8 on the second. We are blessed indeed to have our Bibles. What a textbook. You students, I'm going to devote most of the day toward you. There are students in here old and young. There are students in public schools of various sorts, private schools and home schools. Those of you that aren't in some sort of a school, you're in the school of life, in the school of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who aren't going to a formal place of education are going to a formal place of employment. Those of you who aren't going to either, you can pray for everyone that is. Because this can affect all of us if we will submit ourselves to the precious Word of God. I desire... And the Lord desires that each of you, in your respective roles, be distinguished men and women before God and good men and before the world. Lord, help us to accomplish something toward that end this day. Let me spend a few minutes on what was going to be the first sermon and then go into an exhortation and charge to you students. I love the Bible. It's got a bunch of students in it. And students that accomplished great things. They were great men in the history of the earth. And we're told some things about them that you can adapt to your life. And I hope that those of you who start school tomorrow, and it's a number of you, will be ready to hit the ground running 
and from the first moment of the first class, be ready to apply yourself with all the diligence that Joseph, Daniel, and the Lord Jesus Christ would have applied themselves. Don't get yourself in a hole by going into tomorrow poorly. Don't come and tell me after two weeks that you blew your first test and therefore you're digging yourself out of a hole for the rest of the semester. Why don't you ace your first test and then be able to cruise the rest of the semester? I mean cruise like a dedicated, diligent student. But we start with the greatest book of all, the only book that speaks truth from cover to cover. There's nothing forward or perverse in it. Every book of man that you read, every paragraph and sentence needs to be dissected because what in it is a lie? Where were they confused? Where were they in darkness? Where did they refuse to learn? Was it the whole book? Half of the book? Most of the book. But the Bible is all true. Every word of it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. What a book the Bible is. Matthew chapter 7. You children, you youth, you adults, the Lord Jesus Christ has a word for us. As we go out of here, we have a certain way that He wants us to live. And He gives us this axiom in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many... There be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. This is an axiom of life. Children and youth, it is not your parents that try to be restrictive. It's not your parents that restrain you from doing certain things that others do. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the High King of Heaven, the Lord of Glory, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the only Master and Rabbi worthy of the titles. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, our Apostle and High Priest and the Prophet of our profession. He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate. Now for those of you who excel in language, how is the word straight spelled? Is it S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T? If it was our English word S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, then it would mean the shortest distance between two points. A straight line. But it's not spelled that way. So it's not talking about a gate that was made by David Taylor. As opposed to a gate made by Jonathan Crosby. David's would be straight, S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, and mine would be crooked if it even held together. But that's not what it says. It's straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, meaning tight, restrictive, like a straight jacket, 
A straitjacket is not spelled S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, meaning it doesn't have crooked seams. A straitjacket is S-T-R-A-I-T because it binds you up so that you can't move. And Jesus said, enter ye in at the straight gate. There are two gates. When you children and you youth walk out of here, and us adults, when we walk out of here, there are two gates. And the gates are how we're going to live. The gates are our choice of lifestyle. The gates are either success or destruction. The gates, one leads to heaven, one leads to hell. Look at it any way you wish. But it's the gate, and you will make a choice when you go out of here. You will make a choice in your vehicle on your way home. You will make a choice with your mouth even while you're here when we say things to one another. The straight gate is the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's restrictive because we restrict ourselves to what He has taught us we should think, we should say, and we should do. And what we should not think, say, or do. So it's restrictive. It's straight. And so the rule is, enter ye in at the straight gate. You have a choice. And you want to make a choice for the straight gate. You want to make a choice of the restricted lifestyle. The restricted lifestyle is the successful lifestyle. A person that's allowed to do anything they wish will never accomplish anything of importance. Whether it is in a good school or in the military, or in a good company, there are restrictions on your conduct, the use of your time. And it's those that are the most restrictive and that put you in a proper path and keep you in it where you accomplish the most. The Lord isn't trying to restrain you from being successful. He's trying to help you be successful. Enter ye in at the straight gate. So let's always be thinking, is this the restrictive way of Jesus Christ or is this the loose way of the world? And I want to tell you something. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, is not comparing the religion of Jesus Christ to the Philistines. It's comparing the religion of Jesus Christ to the most conservative denomination of the Jews, the Pharisees. Because the whole sermon began with the words, Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the comparison. This comparison is against other Christians. We find Christians so commonly today who have no restrictions. They have the wide gate the wide, and the broad way. But the Lord calls us to a straight gate, a restricted way of living, and a narrow way. So one is easy and one is hard. The world's way is easy. You can do anything you want. The Lord's way is hard. He wants you to keep His rules. But there's a reward in keeping His rules, and I want to tell you that. The happiest you will ever be is when you are keeping the Lord's rules. Real freedom, real freedom is deliverance or the power to escape doing what you want to do what is right. That's real freedom. Real liberty is to be delivered from the propensities of your flesh, that is your desires, to do what God wants you to do. So first of all, we see in the difference, one is easy and one is hard. The Lord wants us to choose the hard way. And it's the hard way that will make us the happiest, and it's the hard way that will make us the most successful. The second thing is that we note, we notice there, that there's only a few in the hard way, but there's a whole big crowd in the broad way. 
And so you, you've got to measure what you're doing by what is everyone else doing. It's a common statement of teenagers. But daddy, everybody does that. Do you know what you've just told your daddy to do in the way of making a decision? Not to let you do it. Because if everybody's doing it, then it's the wrong thing. If only a few are doing it, and the few are good people, then that's what you want to do. Why do you want to be average? You little poor sheep. Don't you have a mind? Why do you want to follow the crowd? The crowd's always wrong. Always. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ and His small band of disciples. Don't follow the crowd. Why are you so weak? Why are you so moldable by peer pressure? Just because everyone else does it? Whatsoever is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Luke 16, 15. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Why do you want to follow with liars and those that are abominable before God? Why not follow with his few saints? Dare to be a Daniel. I think I saw that on the opposite page where we were just singing a few minutes ago. There's two ways we walk out of here. One is hard, one is easy. One has just a few in it, and one has many. I want to be part of the few. I don't want to be, I never wanted to be part of the many, but, you know, I hope you don't want to be part of the many. Right. Don't you want to be different? Don't you want to excel? Don't you want to be distinguished? You can't be distinguished when you're lost in a crowd of billions. You can be distinguished when you're in a crowd of twelve. That's why their names are known in the New Testament, the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles. That's why Joseph, David, Daniel, and others are known in the Bible. Because they were exceptions. Oh, children. Austin. Michael. Michelle. Luke. I want you to be great. The Lord wants you to be great. Amen. Allison. The Lord wants you to be great. Lord, help us. Here's the rule. Enter in at the straight gate. So every decision you make, today, tomorrow, in school, out of school, with homework, after school, with with schoolmates, every decision, choose the straight gate. Where is the narrow way that leads to success that Jesus Christ has outlined for me? And apply the Bible to your decision making. Don't just follow the crowd. Don't just do what comes naturally. Because what comes naturally and what the crowd is doing is wrong. Follow the truth. Follow the truth of God's precious word. Follow the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not very many people want to follow that road. You'll be in a small company. But you know the top 2% always is small, isn't it? The top 2% in any IQ exam are considered the threshold of genius. I mean, it's exciting to be in the top 2%. Why isn't it as exciting to be in the top 2% in the way of character? The top 2% in the way of Christianity? Before we get out today, I want you to believe that WQ is far more important than IQ. Right. And that CQ is far more important than IQ. Your wisdom quotient is more important than your intelligence quotient. Oh, The foolish men with big IQs and their bloated egos that can't see anything. They walk on in darkness. Your wisdom quotient 
is what is right in any situation. That's wisdom. Can't be taught in a book except this book. And by the Spirit of the living God. And your CQ, that's your character quotient. Your character quotient will get you much farther than your IQ. If your character and your reputation and your name are excellent, you will go someplace. Whether you have a high, medium, or even a low IQ. If you have great character. It's great character that men remember and they want a place for you in their organization because you've got great character. They can always find somebody with a higher IQ. Don't you know that? Go online and take a few IQ tests and find out that there's always someone smarter than you. In fact, there's not just someone smarter than you. There's thousands smarter than you. But can you excel in wisdom? Can you excel in character? Lord, help us to that end. How few are there that find the straight and the narrow way? The Bible tells us there were few, that is, eight souls were saved in the days of Noah. It tells us that in 1 Peter 3.20. When Abraham was called out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, how many were there? Was Abraham told to bring along his large family? Or was Abraham told to come himself and to leave his father's house? There was only a few. How many were there when Jacob went to Paden Aram to get himself a wife? Himself. But he came back with 11 sons, and a 12th was to be born shortly. In the church in the wilderness, how many were there when two million Jews stood on the brink of Canaan at the Jordan River, and 12 spies gave a report about the land? Do you want to be in the top 20% of your class? Then choose Joshua and Caleb. The other 10... My percentages are off a little bit. For those of you that are sitting there with your minds twirling, I'm sorry for not doing the quick math. But we had 12 spies, and two gave a good report. Ten gave an evil report. Do you want to be in the top two in that class? One was a valedictorian. One was a salutatorian of the class of spies. Ten died. Two were great men. That's a small minority. But now let's think even tighter. Those two were preserved while the entire nation was destroyed above the age of 20. Now that isn't the top 2%, and that's not the top two-tenths of 1%. That is a very small minority. But this is what the Bible tells us about how small and how few have followed the truth. Are you ready and willing to stand? Who cares who joins you? The Lord Jesus Christ is with you. The Apostle Paul once took two exams. They were both before Caesar Nero. And he said, no man stood with me. Second Timothy chapter 4 tells you about them. Right. No man stood with me, but the Lord stood with me and delivered me out of the mouth of the lion. Praise the Lord. Amen. If you've got the Lord Jesus Christ with you, you're in a majority in, the, in speaking of power. Oh, to have the Lord Jesus Christ with you and to do what is pleasing to Him every day. That's what you want to do. That's passing. That's succeeding. How few were there? In David's day, he had to live with the Philistines. He couldn't even live among his own people. In David's day, the church followed Absalom instead of David and his priests. 
In Elijah's day, how many were there? That had not bowed their knee to the image of Baal? 7,000. Is 7,000 a big number? Not when you compare it to a population of 3 million. Even 7,000 is a small number. It's been few. Great men have to be rare. Great men have to be different because if they weren't different, they'd look like everyone else and they wouldn't be great. To be great, you've got to be exceptional. You've got to be different. And the Lord tells you how to be different from cover to cover of this wonderful book, this wonderful library of God's Word. How few were there in Jeremiah's day? (laughs) The whole nation was against him except a few, just a few parties. How about when Nebuchadnezzar struck up his band and they were to bow to his golden image that he had raised? How many wouldn't bow? Three. Three. Was it a pretty big empire? Did it have about 120 provinces? Did it stretch from India to Ethiopia? Did all the sheriffs, magistrates, princes, judges, and rulers all hit the deck? But three wouldn't. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were graduates of his fast-track program. They had been taken out of Judah. They were in the top 1% of their classes in Judah. They were put in Nebuchadnezzar's fast-track program, where exceptional students are always put. And they graduated to the top of their class. And when Nebuchadnezzar interviewed them, they were ten times better than all the established magicians and astrologers in his kingdom. Do you know what made them great? Because they had great character. And when the king said, worship this, they said, we're not going to worship that king. And we're not careful. We're not worried or anxious about our answer that we're going to give to you. We don't even know if God's going to deliver us from your fiery furnace or not. But we're not going to worship your image. Those are three great men. Alex, can you be like them? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I was taught as a child, if you want to remember them, shake your bed, make your bed, and to bed we go. Three Hebrew children. Oh, sometimes it takes little helps. A rat in the house might eat the ice cream. That's how I learned to spell arithmetic. Now they made it simpler. It's math. But it used to be called arithmetic. Oh, anyway. Okay, did I get you, did I get you relaxed again? Yeah, isn't that pitiful? I wish you'd relax with... I know. I wish I was a better speaker. I wish I could motivate you. I wish I could get you shouting and stomping in here like Bob Eufer used to do at the University of Michigan for 50 years. In my humble opinion, the greatest sportscaster that ever lived. When he would broadcast a football game between the University of Michigan and Ohio State University, he would have the population of Michigan ready to march on Ohio. He talked, about it, he talked about it as being a war. That Woody Hayes was down there with his gray and scarlet legions of demons. And that George Bo Patton Schembechler was going to come out of the tunnel and wage war on that field. I remember when President Gerald Ford spoke at Michigan. He graduated from Michigan. He was an All-American center for the football team for three years. They gave the crowd to Bob Eufer for 15 minutes. By the time Gerald Ford took the stage, they'd all marched on Soviet Russia with swords. I wish I, I, wish I was like that. But listen, the Word of God should get your attention. It's powerful. It's wonderful. And it describes some wonderful men. 
And those three Hebrew children, the Bible calls them children when they were taken captive. They had no fear. And they were wonderful. Jesus referred to His church as a little flock. Jesus wondered when He returned, would He find faith on the earth? Jesus never modified His message to increase the crowd. Jesus, in fact, would turn His message in such a way as to drive the crowd away. Because He wanted to expose them that they were not there for the truth's sake. They were not there for righteousness' sake. In John 6, they were there for their belly's sake. He had fed the 5,000 and everybody likes a free lunch. And so He worked them over about the word bread. I am the bread from heaven. If a man eat me, he shall never hunger. And it tells us repeatedly, they were murmuring among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It drove them crazy. And they came to him, his disciples said, don't you know this is a hard saying? Do you think Jesus knew it was a hard saying? Of course he knew it was a hard saying. Do you know what he ended up saying to them? Will ye go away also? That's John 6. He wasn't trying to increase the crowd. The truth's always been followed by just a few. The Bible describes belly worshippers as being many. The Bible describes fornicators and other sinners, even at the church at Corinth, as being many. Paul said he had many adversaries that gloried after the flesh. At the church at Corinth, many were sick and weak and many slept. Many were dead already. John warned of many deceivers and false prophets. False prophets and teachers would corrupt many by their false doctrine. If bitterness is not dealt with, it springs up into a tree and can corrupt and defile many. We're talking about the truth here. If you're too old to be a student or employee, pray for those who are young enough and listening. I hope that the older members of this church, with the Lord, with me, and all of us together have one mind, that we want our children and our youth to be great in the sight of the Lord. It's very discouraging when we see those that do not want to be great in the sight of the Lord. But we trust that among this assembly, there are those that want to be great in the sight of the Lord and in the sight of good men. There's examples, there's lessons, there's rules that apply to everyone that's in school, anyone with a job, anyone with duties. If you'll just take it and apply it to yourself. Brethren, we have the greatest educational opportunities in the history of the world. Anyone can go and be anything. With God's blessing, anyone can be anything. It's incredible. Thank you, Lord. We are not worthy of the least of all your mercies. Even as Christians, even though we disagree with most of what our government believes, even though we disagree with most of what the NEA proposes, even though we disagree with a lot of what PTA approves, We can still go do anything we wish. Thank you, Lord. We have some excellent students throughout the assembly. We have some excellent programs in our own area that allow you to accelerate your education as fast as you want to accelerate it. We have 16-year-olds getting their associate's degree this year. Now, that's just plain ridiculous. You should be 20 before you get your associate's degree. But if you can get it at 16, more power to you. If you can get it at 17, you're still doing great and you're three years ahead of the curve. It's wonderful. These are programs and the government pays for them. We want to take advantage of them. We even have a student body president sitting in our midst. And we hope that he will do a wonderful job this year. Many adults, I believe, with me, wish we could go back and do a little bit better 
in our academic education. When I say I was the greatest underachiever in the history of Michigan public education, I mean it, and I don't mean it as a joke. I mean it to my shame. I wish I could go back. I don't like seeing some of you little whippersnappers getting your associate's degree when you're 16, 17, and 18. I want to go back and see if I could do it at 15. Because, see, there's still a little bit of competition left in the old man. But, you know, I wasted it. I was more interested in cars, motorcycles, girls, and sports. Those were my four R's. And I wasted that time. What a disgrace. I've had school counselors at Dexter High School in Dexter, Michigan tell me just exactly what I told you. I was the greatest example of underachievement they had ever witnessed. They'd look at those little Iowa basic skills tests I had taken as a child in junior high and then look at my flunking reading for pleasure in high school and say, what happened? But you know... I just want to give you a horrible example. And you know, I'm so excited about every one of you. I'm so excited about every one of you going to school tomorrow and tearing up. Tear the place up. That's right. yep. In a good way. I don't mean vandalism. I mean get A's. Participate in class. Show your character. Acquire wisdom through the Bible. And be great. Your goal, whether it's in school or on the job, is to distinguish yourself before God and men which the Lord Jesus Christ did. He grew in wisdom. Jesus was homeschooled. We're not told anything else about him. I believe David was homeschooled. We're not told anything else about him. He's out in the field keeping his sheep. Moses went to the state university and dropped out just before graduation. The Apostle Paul had a double major. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel and learned the Jewish religion inside and out. But then he went to a graduate school and got a second major in Arabia. For the Lord Jesus Christ taught him directly. He had a double major. Joseph went to vocational school in Egypt. Daniel went to the Ivy League. Nebuchadnezzar's fast track program. Peter went to the school of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, when he opened his mouth, you knew what he was by trade. A fisherman. They knew he was unlearned. That's what the Bible describes him as. But when he opened his mouth, out came the Lord Jesus Christ's doctrine. And do you know what it says about him and his education? They knew that he had been with Jesus. Would to God that we can be as accomplished. And there's things that we can learn from these men. And I hope to communicate a little bit of it to you. Lord, help us. Moses. The State University of Egypt for 40 years. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Samuel went to school early about the age of five. He worshipped the Lord in Shiloh. His mother dropped him off there and she didn't see him again. He was under the tutelage of Eli, the high priest. And he rose up to be the greatest man in Israel. He judged Israel for many years as the number one in the land of Israel. He graduated the top of his class under Eli. Ezra is described to us as a ready scribe. And what a teacher he was by being a ready scribe in the law of God. In Nehemiah chapter 8, he could get up and read the word of God distinctly and give the sense and cause the people to understand the reading. Don't we love Nehemiah chapter 8? 
because he was a ready scribe. He did all his homework. He applied himself to the Word of God. He read it. He memorized it. He pronounced it. He understood it. He read it in its context. Ezra was great in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of men. Elihu dropped out of school early. Elihu sat around a campfire. It was his senior practicum with Job, Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz. He sat around that fire and listened to four of the smartest men on earth discourse about Job's problems. That's after they worked up something to say after sitting there in silence for seven days. Elihu listened to all that drivel, that twaddle that came out of their mouths. Go look up those two words, children. It's a lot of what you're going to hear. Drivel and twaddle out of men who aren't teaching the Bible. But Elihu dropped out of school. He couldn't, he just couldn't listen to that anymore. So he had to stand up and quit. And he stood up and said, you four guys, I've just listened to all your hot air. None of you know how to answer Job. None of you know what you are talking about. I sat still for 30 chapters because you're older than me and I ought to let you go first. But now I've got something to say. I'm about to blow up. Let me give you my opinion. Age should speak first. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. That is a wonderful statement. Would to God every young man was filled with the spirit of Elihu, and that he understood the revelation that Elihu depended on. It was the revelation of God's Word. It was the revelation by inspiration from God Himself. So he dropped out of that school of those four teachers because he knew more than they did. And he told them in chapter 32 and 33 and 34 and 35 and 36 and 37, those are Elihu's chapters, the truth about what was happening to Job. He explained to them a philosophy of righteousness about God that vindicated him that they hadn't heard before. He laid into them. He brought them back to reality. Thank you for Elihu. What an example in the Bible. Solomon is a student. Solomon gave himself to understand and to seek out by wisdom everything there was on this planet. Everything that is done under heaven, he pursued. He gave himself to it and he said, can there be anyone that can do more than I did? The answer to that question is no. He studied everything that was done under the heaven to find out what the purpose for man was on earth. He had the most degrees. He had the most education. He was the wisest of all men except our Lord Jesus Christ. And what did he say? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That is the fundamental axiom of what we need to learn. That is the scope and sequence that students... Scope and sequence is what a government writes or a... an, an educational institution writes for what's to be accomplished in each grade. But the scope and sequence for our children and our youth ought to be first, fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. The Bible tells us the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. Where did our three favorite students go? And I've just picked three. We could work on any one of these. Elihu, we could preach for a week on Elihu from those chapters. But let's talk about Joseph, David, and Daniel. Joseph went to vocational school. Trade school, technical school, Daniel, David was homeschooled, and Daniel went to the Ivy League, the fast-track program of Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible tells us very plainly in Daniel chapter 1 that Nebuchadnezzar sent his servants into Judah to find the brightest and the best of all Judah, 
prince's sons, king's family. Bring the very best. Men that are studied in science. That's what it says in Daniel chapter 1. Men that understand and can communicate that we can teach the way of the Chaldeans and the language of the Chaldeans. So those are the three. Where did those three go? Are they worth looking at their lives? How high did Joseph go? He was a slave. He probably stood manacle on a trading block without clothes. He went to the top. Even though he was a Hebrew that was despised by the Egyptians. What about David? He was the eighth of eight sons. He was a little shepherd boy. He went to the top of God's government in the world. He was a great man in the earth. All men feared him. He ruled from the Euphrates River to the Nile River. They paid him tribute. He collected an enormous amount of wealth in order to build the house of God exceeding magnifical. Because he was a great student. And Daniel, he was taken captive by the Babylonians out of his home country, hauled 500 miles to the east. When he went to school, he didn't just get a physical. When he went to school, he had two of his organs cut off. He became a eunuch in Nebuchadnezzar's court. But he rose to the top. He sat next to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, he sat next to Darius the Mede, and he sat next to Cyrus the Persian, and he continued all the way for 70 years under those different kings because he was great. Because he was great in school, and Daniel chapter 1 tells us about his school. He was a wunderkind. That's a German word for a very precocious, special student that rises and excels more than others. A wunderkind. He was on the fast-track program of Nebuchadnezzar, and he blew it apart. At the, his commencement exercise was preceded by an interview. His interview was with Nebuchadnezzar, and it's all in Daniel chapter 1. Right. Nebuchadnezzar the king sat down and interviewed Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when he interviewed them and communed with them, He found that they were ten times wiser, with ten times more understanding than all the established magicians and astrologers of the Chaldean Empire. And they were raw raw graduates out of the fast track program. Do you know why? Because God filled them with wisdom. God gave them knowledge. And, And God will give every one of you exceptional knowledge and He will open exceptional doors if you will put Him first in your life. There is no IQ that can make up for God's blessing. If If you will emphasize character quotient and if you will emphasize wisdom quotient and if you will emphasize the fear of the Lord, the Lord will take care of the rest. He will take care of the rest whether your IQ is at 160, 120. He'll take care of you. Lord, thank you for all these wonderful examples. Look at their hearts. Let's just look at these three men a couple of ways. Look at their hearts. Joseph's heart. What kind of a heart did he have? Potiphar's wife lays hold of him and says, sleep with me. Come lie with me. What does his heart say? My master trusts me so much, he has put everything under his hand in my hands. He does not even know what is in his house. This is Genesis chapter 39. 
He does not even know what is in his house except what I tell him and what he eats. Therefore, I cannot do it against him. That's the character that was in his heart. Second, and more important, how can I commit this great wickedness and sin against God? That is CQ, character quotient. That is the heart of a man that is going somewhere. That is a man who has made up his heart. God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I'll never get near it. Get away from me. It didn't matter that he was risking his job. It didn't matter that he was risking his life. It didn't matter that he was risking offending his master, Potiphar. He wouldn't do it. What about David? David arrived in the battlefield as a young man. And he saw Goliath come out and challenge the armies of Israel. And he said, why are you letting this happen? They were all afraid of him. And then some men, some soldiers there told him, you should hear what the king's going to do to the man's family that kills him. And David listened to the list, and it was pretty impressive. And he says, tell me that list again. Then his older brother comes by. David's eighth. David's little, little eighth brother. Big brother comes by, Eliab. And Eliab was a stud because the Bible tells us he was. Eliab comes by and says, hey, little guy, what's happening to the few sheep that you're supposed to be keeping? What are you here for? You're just down here to watch the battle. You're not big enough to get in the army, but you want to sit here and watch it? You've got, you got a naughty little heart that's full of pride. That's why you're down here. And David said, Is there not a cause? Amen. Is there not a cause that somebody should go out and fight him? And I will. Right. That's the heart of David. Do you know where a heart like that goes? To the top. Right. And David ended up at the top. Because he had a heart that was committed to defend the Lord's name and the Lord's integrity against that uncircumcised Philistine named Goliath who was blaspheming the God and the armies of Israel. How about Daniel? Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. And I, I would like you to turn so that you can see the verse. Because it's a verse I want you to remember about Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. We want to see what is in their hearts when they're young. How old was Joseph when he did this to Potiphar? Somewhere between 17 and 25. He was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh. How old was David? He wasn't old enough to be in the military. He was still home keeping sheep. How old was Daniel? Very young. Because he still lived another 75 years. To the third year of Cyrus. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 1, eight. look at his heart. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel is most likely a teenager. Let's just say he's 17. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us the details. It just tells us enough to know, to know that he was a young man. He was called a child in Daniel chapter 1. The children out of Judah... The Jewish children. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He risked his life. He risked his education. He risked being despised by the rest of that class that was entering Nebuchadnezzar's fast track program. He risked being made fun of because he wouldn't eat that fantastic fare that Nebuchadnezzar was going to give him every day. He didn't care. He purposed in his heart. Look at their hearts. Anthony. 
Brianna, it's what's in your heart that counts. What's in your heart is more important than what's in your head. What's in your heart is more important than what's in your sleeve. It's what's in your heart. Jonathan, it's what's in your heart. Be like Joseph, David, and Daniel. Look at their hearts. They're wonderful. Peers meant nothing to them. Joseph told on his ten brothers. It tells us that in Genesis 37 and verse 2, it is not tattling nor tailbearing when you go to someone in authority and tell them that someone is doing something wrong. That is not tattling or tailbearing. If that were the case, then we should never call the police when we see someone's house being broken into. That's ridiculous. Joseph was a good man. And he told his father that the sons were shaming the family by the way they conducted themselves out in the field. He didn't care about peer pressure. He didn't care if his brothers liked him or not. They hated him. And they were conniving and conspiring to kill him. It didn't bother him. David ignored his older brother and went out and took on Goliath anyway. Daniel didn't care if anybody went with him or not in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. It doesn't say that Daniel had a meeting with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to get their cooperation and support. It just says he purposed in himself that he was not going to defile himself. Who cares about peers? If you want to care about peers, that means you're average. Bless your heart. That's another word for loser. Who in the world wants to be average? As soon as you reduce yourself to what your peers think, that means you've taken yourself out of being exceptional and made yourself average. You can't listen to your peers if you're going to be exceptional. They didn't fear the consequences. Joseph didn't care what Potiphar was going to do to him. David didn't care about Saul for the years that Saul chased him. He was going to do what was right and righteous. Daniel didn't care what Nebuchadnezzar was going to do to him. In Daniel chapter 4, Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar and said, O king! Let my words be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, if perchance it might be a lengthening of thy tranquility. He said that to the great king Nebuchadnezzar, who with one flick of his eyes could take away Daniel's life. When, when a law was passed under Darius the Mede, that did not allow prayer for any god but Darius himself for 30 days, Daniel didn't care. He went and opened his windows toward Jerusalem and prayed three times a day like he always had. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. These men did not fear consequences for being righteous. And that is what every one of you and I need to have. Whether it's on the job, whether it's in school, whether it's with neighbors, wherever it is, we should purpose in our heart that we're going to follow the Lord in His straight and narrow way. We should not be afraid of peers nor measure ourselves by them. And we should not be afraid of the consequences because God will deliver us. And whether He delivers us or not, we should not sin against Him. These are some basic foundational rules. There's much more to follow in the second assembly. Students, young people, children, be great. Start tomorrow. Purpose in your heart today. I want to be an outstanding student. I want to be exceptional. I want to be on the fast track of God's program. I want to be a wunderkind in His definition. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.